What's up, Fight Fans? It is Monday, November 13th, 2017, and this is the Monday Morning Analyst here on MMAFighting.com. Hope you guys are doing well. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I'm Luke Thomas, host of this podcast, as well as some other things. You probably know that already. Three parts of the podcast, as always. A bit of an overview from the weekend more generally. Some multimedia in the second segment as we drill down into something specific. And then a look ahead at what's coming up next weekend. Um, two events, really just one event to talk about. UFC Norfolk, uh, that took place on Saturday. There was a Bellator event on Friday, but not a whole lot to say about it. We'll get up to just a little bit of coverage in just a second. But let's start where the action starts. UFC Norfolk... I'm trying to get the uh, pull up my notes here from where it took place. Uh, by the way, also called UFC Fight Night Party versus Pettis UFC Fight Night 120 for those counting. This took place at the excuse me Ted Constant Center, excuse me Ted Constant Convocation Center in Norfolk, Virginia, with an attendance of 8,442 and a total gate of 642,000. As someone who has been, I, I went to college near here, I went to college at William & Mary, which is not too far from Norfolk, Northampton Roads, um, always been surprising to me that they've gone to Norfolk. No, well, not surprising they went to Norfolk. Still surprising to me the UFC, to my knowledge, has never been to Richmond. I'm not really sure why that is, because there's a fan base there, there are venues that could hold it, meeting this size. Uh, people could more easily travel from Washington, D.C. if they wanted to go. I don't get it. Anyway, uh, okay. In your main event, Dustin Poirier taking on Anthony Pettis, who tapped out in the third round at 2.08 due to a, what appeared to be a rib injury. Now, I did a post-fight show. I'll post that up here as well. At the end of the video, I'll post my Conor McGregor reaction, so you can get um, all of those if you want. But uh, we're going to talk about this more specifically in the second segment. I think just the main thing I want to stress here was that, one... I really, really appreciate the game plan from Dustin Poirier. He has at times not been his own worst enemy, but he has not performed up to the level of his skills uh, by making some some bad decisions uh, in there about slugging it out. And he did slug it out at the end of the first round with Anthony Pettis, but um, in a much more confined way. He wasn't slugging it out in the middle. He was, he had Anthony Pettis backing up, covering up a lot. So he did take a couple of shots. It got a little hairy there for a moment, but generally speaking, if you're looking at the ways in which Poirier has not fought up to his level, this would not be a strong example of that. This actually would be the opposite of that. And he really would strike it out for about a minute, take Anthony Pettis down, and they had incredible exchanges on the ground. We're going to look at that in the second segment. Second point I want to make about this, Dustin Poirier doesn't have jiu-jitsu that is as flashy as Anthony Pettis, and I don't say that in a pejorative way when I'm talking about Pettis. He has a great guard. He has a great guard retention. But you're going to see in the second segment... It is Poirier who has better positional fundamentals, and that's a big reason why he won that contest on the ground. All right, so let's go to Matt Brown versus Diego Sanchez, winning at 344 of the very first round. Fox Sports 1 really did Matt Brown a disservice here because I know that the 8,400-plus in attendance in Norfolk got to see this play out in real time, but you never at home got to see this moment play out as it was supposed to. You didn't get to feel it in real time because of the technical botch. You didn't get to see and hear. I mean, you could hear Paul Felder's reaction, but even then, I wonder if they could see that there was some kind of issue going on because they were like abnormally quiet. Point being is, part of the way in which we receive these fights impacts how we view them long term. I didn't see a lot of chatter after this was over that this should be considered a KO of the year contender. This is an easy KO of the year contender, and I really believe that the way in which the product was hampered by the broadcast ultimately has diminished some of the 
awareness of how good a KO this is by Matt Brown. Matt Brown looked like a samurai with that elbow, slicing Diego Sanchez in half, trying to nail him through the floor, and they were standing. It was incredible. Now, Diego Sanchez had a moment there where he had that nice body kick standing in the southpaw position going after the liver of Matt Brown. But other than that, it was really the Matt Brown show. Stopping some takedowns early, then getting takedowns in separation, and then in the middle of the cage really beginning to work uh, his jab. He slowly warmed up. I think he knew there was going to be an early storm from Diego and just got better as it went along. Ultimately, he did it twice. Caught the kick with one hand and then measured it with the elbow the first time. Diego threw a kick or a strike right before Matt Brown threw it, so it kind of got muted. But the second time, it was one of the most ferocious elbow KOs I think I've ever seen in mixed martial arts. That is an easy, easy, easy call for KO of the Year nominee. Whether it should win it in the end, we can have a debate about that when we've cobbled them all together. But there, no one's list of nominees better have that one missing because that was spectacular. As for what's next for Matt Brown, I guess we'll see. As for what's next for Diego Sanchez, telling everyone he's not going to retire. Um, but clearly, he is probably closer to the end of his career than, than you know, even he might realize. Nothing to say about Andre Arlovsky versus Junior Albini winning by the unanimous decision 29-28 and then 230-27s. Albini looked like he was wearing a diaper. A really lackluster, boring performance from him. He loves step-through knees and then firing over the top. But that's not crafty enough to really get Arlovsky to bite on it. It landed a couple times, but he could never really do a whole lot with it. A lot of clinching and pressing Arlovsky into the fence. And frankly, Arlovsky was on the outside much busier. He was the one who was constantly throwing combinations, constantly moving, setting up, um, just really putting a lot of that volume and activity. And, and neither guy really landed a whole hell of a lot, although Arlovsky had his moments. I mean, he had, he had roughed up Albini's face to some extent. Um, nothing super memorable, but... Yeah, it was a clean win, um, stopping a five-fight losing streak. Now, what that means actually for his future, hard to say, but not a great performance from Albini, not a great fight to watch, but Arlovsky, definitely, definitely, definitely the deserving winner there. Cesar Fajera and Nate Marquardt put on a hell of a fight. I really enjoyed this. 29-28, 28-29, 29-28. So Cesar Fajera getting 29-28 on two scores. Uh, two judges scorecards, excuse me. What I really liked about it, everything. Number one, I love the physical takedowns from Fajera. If he gets in on you, he picks up, he drops, he crashes into the mat with you. That creates a lot of pain, believe me. Um, when he had a knee tap, he would club over the top with the forearm on this side. He would bang over the top. He's not punching you. He's impacting on the inside of the forearm around the, uh, the, the, top, the crown of the head or the neck or shoulder area. Just trying to, just trying to club you over. Like almost like a knee tap, but a more physical, dominating kind of rugby tackle thing. Uh, it was amazing. I really liked that from him. Great transitions. Nate Marquardt is not a slouch on the ground, and there were a couple times where Fajeda had to really acknowledge that and 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 couldn't do a whole lot of positional advancement uh, as a consequence because Nate was really good about being tricky and, and and hard to hold down underneath. I appreciated that. A lot of tit for tat from both guys. Um, Coach Stephen Wright. Has acknowledged MMA striking has a bit of like I strike you, you strike me phenomenon. It's not quite as um, it's it's very it's very shared in that respect. Um, so you saw a lot of that. Both guys landing a lot. You know you saw a lot of blitzes from Nate Marquardt. You saw some blitzes too from Cesar Fajera. A little more countering from him, I guess I could say. Um, but in the end. Uh, they, and by the way, there was that, that flurry at the end of round two, those guys were going after each other. I guess in the end, so, certainly that third round sealed it for Fajeda with the dominant wrestling control and then the top control. So um, great fight by both guys. I had kind of left Nate Marquardt for dead after the Kelvin Gastelum fight, but he showed a lot of spark in this one. He lost, but he showed a lot of spark. And 
he didn't look terribly outmatched, and he looked like he could still compete at this level, depending on what kind of matchmaking he gets. Is he going to fight the top of the division? Probably not. Um, as for Ferreira, he called out uh, Bojashinha. I don't know if they're going to make that, but I wouldn't mind seeing that, depending on what their what their plan is um, for him next as the next Brazilian star. So, uh, And by the way, he did it in English. So good job by Ferreira in trying to reach some crowds that uh, a lot of guys normally can't. Rafael Sansa defeating Matthew Lopez at 150 of the third round, throwing the knee, throwing the left and the right hand, didn't see it, absolutely folded him. Uh, Lopez had missed weight. He looked way bigger than a Sansa in that cage. And a Sansa's had this issue where, you know, if you went down the line and looked at things he's good at, hey, is he good at striking? Hey, is he good at defensive wrestling? Is, is he good at, does he have a good guard? Can he pass on top? Um, you know, what's his sprawl like? He can, all the way down the checklist, he can do all those things, but he never necessarily. Not never, but he rarely has this moment where you walk back and think, man, that was a super memorable performance by him, even though he's so very, very talented. And finally, he got a chance to really showcase like what he is really worth as a fighter. You know, Bantamweight has never been better, and part of the reason why you can say that is, yes, that triangle of Cody, TJ, Dom, but there's a bunch of guys, sharks on the outside circling. Your Aljamain Sterlings, Thomas Almeida's not done in that division, Jimmy Rivera, Rafael Sunsau, and the list goes on. Marlon Moraes, who had a good performance. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. So, um, what a time it is to be a, a, a fan of lighter weight fighters, especially at Bantamweight, and... Um, this was a, a really, really strong performance by him, uh, and 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 had a little problem early, like had to just stay on him. But the activity level, the accuracy, um, the pressure, it just eventually broke him. So a strong veteran performance, and just a show of skills and lethality that I think has been missing from his game, at least when he you know he fights the, the Dillashaws of the world. Clay Guida defeating Joe Lazan. 107 of the very first round via TKO. Man, we know we had talked, I had spoken to Joe last week, and he acknowledged, yo, Clay Guida's hands have gotten way, way better. He knew that was going to happen. You go back and you watch the footage, Joe just looks a little too still for me. Um, he's not moving around, he's not doing a whole lot of this, he's not, you know, you go back and you watch Sage Northcutt, and I'm not here to say, say Sage Northcutt's better than Joe Lazan, I'm just saying he doesn't present a lot of a stationary target. Now, Joe was moving, don't get me wrong, but he was a little bit flat-footed, a little bit still, and Clay Guida was just able to open up with a 1-2. Yes, it landed in a very, you know, uh, there was a little bit of serendipity to, to, to how it landed, but nevertheless, it was a clean shot, man. Hit him with a left, right, and he was throwing nice combos before off of a kick combo. He was putting his strikes together in volume, and, uh, and it landed, and then he recognized he had a hurt opponent, jumped on it right away, smashed him with an uppercut, dropped him, the first time I saw the fight, I didn't think it needed to be stopped a little early, but this time I was like, eh, the fight could have been stopped a little earlier. Not the end of the world, but not a little late, I think. Um, but what a relentless ground-to-pound, savage elbows, hammer fists from Clay Guida. Really, really nice win. And then, admitting in his post-fight interview, he had fought out his contract. And now, he didn't do it in a particularly... Um, you know, confrontational way. He was saying UFC, UFC on the microphone, but that's an interesting little twist and something to keep in mind. Really great win for Clay Guida. Team Alpha Male has done such a good job in not transforming him into somebody he's not, but in taking what he likes to do, what he's good at, what he what can reasonably be expected of him, and putting that together in a better uh, overall package. Uh, great job by that coaching staff and great job by Clay Guida. It takes you to the preliminary card. Marlon Marais taking on John Dodson, winning split decision 30-27, 27-30, 30 Bit of an interesting scorecards. I wouldn't have had it that way. I would have had it more 29-28-ish for Marlon Marais. Bit of a rough going in the first round. Not rough going, but it got dropped and then finding a way to come back. 
Ultimately, Dotson's volume dropped over time. I think the power of Maraish kind of got to him. You saw him throw less and less, or certainly land a lot less and less. And Maraish, I think at first was a little bit blinded by the speed, but once he was able to time it and time the, like, the blitzing of John Dotson, he was able to do a lot with it. He was at least mixing in takedown attempts. You know, how close they got, I don't know. But I think that kind of had Dotson's hands a little low, getting ready for it. Um, and the other thing was, Dotson has big power, but he's clearly not a natural bantamweight. He's a much more natural flyweight. So he can crack with those guys at bantamweight, but he's fighting a bigger target. And so even if he lands with authority, you have to like visibly hurt a guy, I think, if you're John Dodson. Whereas if you're Marish and you're fighting Dodson, those shots are just going to look super hard because you're fighting a smaller guy. It probably has a major impact on him. All I'm saying is there's something to be said for like how much they landed because you would see Marish sneak a left through, sneak a right through, particularly the right hand of Marish. He was, he was just homing in on Dodson as he charged all the time. But I guess what I'm saying is, if you're Dodson and you're realizing you're fighting bigger guys, you may think in your mind, I've landed on him just as much as he's landed on me, but it doesn't really look that way, or even if it looks that way, it just looked like Marais had the heavier damage. Um, so, something to keep in mind if you're John Dodson, like, fighting up a weight class is great, but if you're not visibly, like, dropping guys, I don't know what kind of points judges are going to give you for merely making contact with them, even if it does hurt them, and even if you think it should count, you know, Dotson has this way of when he fights up a weight class of just coming up on the wrong end of decisions that happened against Mike Easton here as well. He's had a number of times at Bantamweight where you're just like, mm, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like unless you really just sock a guy with a with a punch, if the judges are noticing what you're doing, something to think about. Tatiana Suarez defeating Vivian Pereira, 30-27. She did the same thing a couple of times that Fajera was doing up uh, against Nate Marquardt. I love these guillotines as mat returns. People scrambling and then jumping on a guillotine, not sitting to guard, wrenching it so that they wrench them back over so that they choose to go back down. It was a big tactic of Luis Smolka uh, against Ben Wynn. I love it, love it, love it. Tatiana Suarez all the time. Um... Yeah, she was either using Pereira's guillotines against her, by the way, and grabbing uh, and getting this. So you see a lot of people, when they get a single, they run the pipe. But you can do it head inside, and you essentially, King Mo showed me how to like really fine-tune this one. Um, you know, where you pull up the leg and you drive pressure in at the same time, using the head and the shoulder, and there's a little bit of twisting motion as well. She's able to get that as well. So she was using Pereira's guillotine against her. Really great job, and just, you know, positionally just completely owning her on, on the floor. Sage Northcutt. Defeating um, Michelle Quinones, uh, 30-27 across the board. You, this is what is this? His third, fourth, fourth, I think, victory in the UFC by Sage Northcutt. This is by far the best one. This was what I've been waiting for from Sage Northcutt. I know that I criticized him, and many others did as well. Um, after the fight with Brian Barberina, when he tapped to a choke, where there was a, a fairly clear uh, escape for, but it was because. Everyone had thrust him along, frankly, before he was ready. And he still has a long way to go. There's still a lot of questions left. You know, he had great doubles at the end of rounds, but when they were a little bit, you know, there was a couple times where he didn't time them all that well, or he tried to catch him in open space, uh, or excuse me, against the fence, and he couldn't get him. So that's still a work in progress. We still need to see his defensive jiu-jitsu. We need to see his takedown defense. But, 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 while there's still plenty of questions... The good news is there's still plenty of time for him to get better. I think, as I mentioned with Clay Guida, Alpha Male is taking what he is and putting it into a smarter game plan. He was managing rounds well, catching those major doubles at the end of them. And then before that, 
he really was just so good at keeping Kinonis confused, countering what he liked to do. They had clearly game planned for him, knew what he was going to do. And then by the end of it, Sage was just warming up, you know, catching three triple jet, triple jabbing on a guy, all three landing. Hands were a little low, not a ton of head movement, but the speed gave Quinones a lot of problems, and he was just managing to constantly pressure him, push him on the outside. When he wanted to fight in boxing range, he would manage that. Um, just a great job by, by Sage Northcutt. A real developmental show. That's what you needed to see. Progress. So am I asking him to be, you know, Conor McGregor or something? No, I'm not. I'm asking him just to be a, a demonstrably smarter, cleaner, more efficient version than he was the last time. And he made a big leap um, since his UFC debut and even his last fight. Team Alpha Male seems like it's a great, great place for him. And I'm really excited to see this because, you know, people ask me, you know, can he be a champion? And I'm like, well, you got to have some managed expectations about even the very best guys. And I, I, it's just way too early to say what, you know, how good he can be. But if someone can make progress like that, then there's a lot of reason to have optimism down the line. Because I think when he was just with his dad, I'm sure his dad loves him and has trained him quite well. But to really be an elite fighter, you got to be around other elite fighters. You got to be in elite camps, and you got to be out there at this age, really, um, you know, putting your nose to the grindstone. And and I think he did that. Nina Ansaroff had a great performance against Angela Hill, winning it by unanimous decision, 29-28 on all three judges' scorecards. Angela Hill looked good at first. What you wound up seeing was I think she was tiring. I think the punching power, the striking power of Ansaroff, um, just a little bit too much for her. The vision of Ansaroff, she was able to make quick reactive decisions following up. She was the one who she would use front kicks and then, you know, she'd use inside kicks to all, and outside kicks as well to off-balance or hurt Um Hill, but what she was really doing to me was she was doing her best work with her boxing. So she would wait for some kind of a charge to get out of the way. She would strike, and she would keep the fight a distance if she wanted to. If she wanted to, then she would let that ha- uh, she would she would let down that wall to then bring her hands to bear. And she had excellent speed, good combinations, um, great angles, great just great great re- reactive decision making. Uh, you know, she told me in May that she wasn't sure she was one retiring, but. You know, she wasn't sure if she was fighting right now, and then the UFC offered her the fight, and she was like, why not? Let's just do it. And uh, wow, glad she did. She looked phenomenal. Great, great win. Angela Hill by no means looked poor. Uh, again, in that first round, I thought she looked pretty good. I thought she took the first round. It's just, I think, though, I just think that they were really, uh, when it came down to the, the two Rams jousting, I think she just got a little bit exhausted by it in the end. Uh, power, The power and the dominant center presence in the cage uh, ultimately just kind of wore down what Angela Hill was really good at. She had her moments, don't get me wrong. But um, but the class of, of, of Nina Ansaroff really showed. Sean Strickland defeating Court McGee, uh, unanimous decision, 30-27 and 2-29-28. Jake, uh, by the way, the commission got that wrong and then had to change it. If you know anything about the Virginia commission, the greatest robbery in MMA history took place in Virginia. It was Mike Easton defeating Chase Beebe. It never should have happened, um, f- you know. Ne- never underestimate the, the ability. I mean, they've gotten way better, so I'll give them their credit, but never underestimate the ability of the Virginia Commission to somehow screw things up. Jake Collier defeating Marcel Fortuna, 30-27, 229-28. Sort of unremarkable. And Carl Robertson getting a nice win over Darren Stewart, 341 the first round via rear naked choke. Fire the night, Dustin Poirier versus Anthony Pettis. Performance of the night, Matt Brown versus Rafael Asuncao. Very, very briefly... Let me go and uh, talk about this Bellator event. Bellator 187. Again, if you want to see, um, you know, my reaction videos um, or whatever I'll, to that, I'll put that at the end. Um, 
Let me just do this very, very quickly. Bellator 187, this took place at the Three Arena in Dublin, Ireland. You all know about the Conor McGregor thing. I'll post a video about that at the end of, the, of this video. Uh, AJ McKee defeating Brian Moore, rear naked choke at the third round, 42 seconds. Bit of a rough run early there for AJ McKee. The big lesson here is every time you want to see him answer a different question, you want to see how he deals with X kind of fighter, Y kind of fighter, Z kind of fighter, uh, Brian Moore up in his face the whole time. Pressure, 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 pressure. And McKee took a second to get adjusted to it, but once he got going, he really was able to, to, to show speed, diversity of offense, and once he can get you know offense moving, he can just take the fight away from you very, very quickly. Sinead Kavanaugh defeating Maria Casanova. I don't know anything about Maria Casanova, but she looked to have almost no ability whatsoever. Um, she shouldn't be fighting at this level. 34 seconds of the first round. Paul Redman. Had a catch weight of 161, defeating Sergio de Jesus Santos, 29-27 on all three judges' scorecards. Uh, Kevin Slice Jr. getting a submission in the first round via a rear naked choke, 157. And then everyone knows what happened with Charlie Ward versus John Redmond, 459 in the first round via KO punch. Okay, let's go to the second segment. Let's take a look at not everything, but some of the grappling exchanges between Poirier and Pettis from that main event. We'll do that now. Dustin Poirier versus Anthony Pettis is just one of those reminders about why lightweight is so special. I've talked about it before in my live chat, where you can just sort of look at like lightweight divisions and other organizations, and it's filled with ridiculous talent. To me, it's like the sweet spot of MMA, where the guys are big enough to do unbelievable damage to each other, um, and uh, yet they can still do everything else um, well in mixed martial arts. But they're not like heavyweights, where they have like crippling power and slow speed. Well, they're not even like, you know, bantamweights that have ridiculous speed. And yes, I know bantamweights fill with some heavy hitters now, but top to bottom, not quite like lightweight. Not nearly as like deep down to 25, 30 as, uh, in terms of the rankings as, as lightweight is. To me, lightweight is just that sweet spot. And it's like the participatory rate in terms of like the number the guys you can recruit. So it's an incredibly talent-rich division. Um, so we're not going to look at everything in this fight, but it was just one of those reminders like this is this is what, you know, why lightweight is so special. On the ground, what you're going to see is something actually kind of interesting. These guys are very different kinds of jiu-jitsu players, and I think you have to look at this and say that they both have their strengths in different ways. Like the things Anthony Pettis is good at, Justin Poirier is not, and vice versa. But I think what you're going to take away from this is, and the reason why he won... Dustin Poirier has better positional fundamentals. And I think that, you know, people say in every sport, fundamentals wins games or fundamentals creates champions, whatever the you know slogan might be. It's not, it's not a joke. It really is true. So this is one thing that Anthony Pettis, though, that does well. He is so good off of his back for a lot of different reasons. But here's one. Anthony Pettis has an ability. Like, he's got a real simple game. Triangles, arm bars, you know, scissor sweeps. He doesn't do anything particularly sophisticated. He just does it very, very well. And I think he surprises a lot of people with like what I would call for this level basic attacks. But when I say basic, I'm not demeaning it. Like they're good. They're great attacks. He hits uh Dustin Poirier with a broom sweep. And you don't see people talk about broom sweeps very often in the UFC because no one ever hits it. Anthony Pettis hits it. So let's watch this. He's getting banged on here. Um, th this is really good here from Anthony Pettis. I mean, not that he's getting crushed, but watch what he does here. So he's, he's covering himself. He's got sort of a knee shield on the inside here, tucked away. And you see what happens is as Poirier throws the punch, he not only bridges and pushes, not bridges, but he not only, he not only posts, excuse me, off of his uh, hand, you'll see he slides his legs at the same time because as he's coming down, the weight's less on his knees. Right? If you think about it, you're shifting your weight onto your, not totally, but some of that force production into the punch lightens you off, off of your hips and your knees. And so he pushes out at the same time, and that slides him off, right? 
So then he decides to stand. And here you can see him. He's, he's getting ready for the attack. He's doing the whole big brother, little brother bit. But he's putting one hand on the hip, or excuse me, one foot in the hips, always making sure you know he's not getting too close. You, you, you want that feet on the hips. You don't want to extend out too far because then you can get separated. But you definitely, if it's possible, you want to keep the feet on the hips as a measure of control, distance management, that kind of stuff. So good job, Anthony Pettison, in, in creating this position, right? Now, here's what happens. You see him grab the ankle here. Pettis is like, well, that's good because your hands aren't as occupied, right? So you're going to be a little bit less likely to throw a punch, or I can at least read what you're probably going to be able to do next. And you can see what he's going to do is he's going to reach for that ankle and push, with, push in this hip, and this leg is going to shoot through. All right? Now, this is the broom sweep, okay? What is the broom sweep? The broom sweep is as follows. Anthony Pettis is going to pull on this ankle while pushing on this hip, and using this as a blocking mechanism. Because if I just pulled on this and pushed on this, you would swing this behind and catch your balance. Right? That's what you would do. But if I pull on your ankle, push on your hip, and then you can even block and pull with this one too, depending on how you want to do it, um, they'll go right over. So watch what happens. Whoop! He goes right over. And he does something really well here. He posts on his elbow. The key to any of these kinds of sweeps, Carlos Condit hit one similar to this. I don't think it's called a broom sweep. I forget what it's called. Where you grab both ankles, the, the person standing, and you put both of your heat, feet in both of their hips, and you push and pull at the same time. But the key to that is they'll go over. But you have to come up at the same time. You can see a lot of white and blue belts hit this, but they don't come up. They just kind of hit it and slowly get to their feet. As soon as they begin to fall, you got to come right on up and, one, posting on the elbow is right, two, grabbing their ankle for a couple of reasons. One, that can help force the, the sweep all the way through. Two, it gives you a measure of control when you stand. You see that? But look, Anthony Pettis, while clever, is not the only clever one in this fight. Here you have um, Dustin Poirier, and he grabs the ankle as well from up here. He doesn't let go of it in the hip, and he uses that, and that actually helps him a little bit because while eventually Pettis separates and then they go to wrestle and he falls off here, which we'll talk about a little bit later, that helped him not get totally overwhelmed in this moment. It enabled him to force Anthony Pettis to spend time creating separation, which gave him the space he needed to eventually scramble and get to his feet. So good job by both guys, but you don't see a lot of broom sweeps in the UFC. Nice, nice job by Anthony Pettis. That was sweet. All right, so we jump to the second round. And again, as I mentioned in the beginning of the first segment, Anthony Pettis, excuse me, um, Dustin Poirier was doing a really good job of just sort of striking it out for a minute and then taking him down. Here we have Anthony Pettis. Anthony Pettis' guard is so good. Now, we already knew that, but a couple of different wrinkles here. His game is not super sophisticated. Um, you know, he's not he's not doing shoot face 50-50 sweeps or, you know, reverse De La Hiva like you saw from him and Eric Spicely. It's not what he's doing. He just has a really nice guard. And the reason why it works is because he has excellent guard retention. If he goes for a triangle and misses and then goes for an armbar and misses, a lot of guys get passed because they don't have they don't, they don't have a great ability to keep their hips centered. You got to make sure your hips are facing theirs after that. You have to be able to find a way to retain guard. Anthony Pettis does not get enough credit for this. He is so good. And we're not talking about shrimping and then recapturing full guard like what Michael Bisping did. He does it open the whole time. Very good job in that sense from Anthony Pettis. And here he is. You can see he's cl climbing. He's got one foot, excuse me, one hand controlling this wrist. He's obviously setting up a triangle. Dustin Poirier wants to posture into him to not give him any space to do that. Um, but he's holding his own foot here to create that gap. 
He eventually gets it over. He seems to kind of lock it up. Doesn't get it. Poirier pulls his head out the side. So then he tries to twist into an armbar. He'll miss that as well. This was a common sequence you saw several times in this fight. But you notice something here. Look how high his hips are on the hips of Dustin Poirier. He's not flat on the ground, folks. He's He is way up in, tucked up in there. And you can't appreciate the difference about that until you've really felt someone do it to you. But the guys who are flat on their backs, the guys who aren't crunching it up, the guys who aren't way up on top of your lap almost, they have a harder time playing with guard. Guard is you gotta be all up in there. You gotta you gotta be right on top of them almost to an extent, right? So here he is scooped up underneath. That's gonna give you a lot more control once you lock up the submission. It's gonna make it, depending on how you do it, harder to pass. And you can see here he is again. Dustin Poirier tries to go and pass. And I want to show you. I want to show you this. Look at this. He is using his knee. Now you can say, look where the hips are facing. Sort of. I mean, hips are facing us, but his hips are directionally this way, and his, and Poirier's hips are directionally this way. So there's a bit of a mismatch there. He uses his own knee on the mat. Which, by the way, if you're unless you have a slender waist and you're very very thin, that can be a little bit painful. Uh, if you ever worn a gi with the belt and the belt is not quite on right or it slides up into your diaphragm, it can actually like hurt. Um, but in any case, neither here nor there. Uh, he uses the knee to post so that he doesn't lose position too much. Poirier wants to shove this knee down and scoot around. Now he's got the toes in the fence, so that's a no-no. But to me, the bigger lesson here is this. He's putting this down as like a doorstop so he can't get moved any further. And with this on the outside of the head and his hands as well, overhooking, that's going to enable him to do that. You see what I mean? He's always, and now look at the hips. They're in line together. Anthony Pess has a very good guard, a very, very good guard. Fundamentals like that are hard to deal with. And then he gets the choke, and then he turns this way. And I like this choke. You can finish a triangle choke from here. Now you have to lock it up, this behind the knee. But I'm saying you can face a guy and finish a triangle choke. But Ryan Hall is the king of this. He likes to turn, and why? Because the calf is on the back of the neck, and you have much more engagement with your hamstrings when you can cut the angle. You can cut the angle. Now, you may have to watch how you grip up here. You have to make sure that your lock is on, but once you do that, look at the size of the calf on the back of the neck. It's a much more engaged, muscular, posterior chain uh, you know, control there. Poirier eventually gets out of it because he just doesn't have a proper locking mechanism on. But I just want to show that. So then he rolls, and you can see Poirier head in the hip, head on the hand, controlling the roll. It's a controlled demolition. And you can see the foot here. I want to show you something. He puts the foot, excuse me, he puts the foot in the, he puts the hook in. As, excuse me, as Pettis turtles. And there it is. Now watch this. He's going to sag his weight back after he gets the seatbelt grip. What is the seatbelt grip? It is Left, in this case, left hand underneath the armpit, right hand over the neck. You can't choke with it, but the right hand underneath the armpit is the one that is quote-unquote stabbing, and the right hand over it holds the stabbing hand. Imagine there's a, a knife in his left hand. He's going to come underneath the armpit, stab, right hand all over the top, controlling. He's going to sag his weight back, and he's going to pull him back. See how far the hook is? He's going to sink it even further as he snatches him off of his base, and then he locks it up. Why is this important? You're going to see later, Anthony Pettis does not know how to, I'm not going to say he does not know how to do this very well, but in the, uh, that, would not, that would be an unfair criticism of me. But in the course of doing this, doesn't appreciate where people need to be. You need a guy who is not on his base. Um, he is, he is, his hips are facing the mat, but Anthony, excuse me, but Dustin Poirier sinks the hook 
when guys are all the way on their knees, not when their ass is in the air and they can jump and, and buck you. If you wait until then to sink your hooks, it's not a secure position. Moreover, once you get a hook, sag them backwards and to that side and then lock up the body triangle, at least for MMA purposes. This is a strong, fundamental understanding of how to attack the back, both by sinking the hooks, how to pull to the hooking side, as well as the back at the same time, snatching them potentially off of at least their, their hips facing down if they're not necessarily on their base, um, and then you know sort of appropriate control mechanisms for mixed martial arts on the back. This is, the, this is excellent work by Dustin Poirier. It looks simple, but you have to appreciate when he is choosing to do it and how he progresses the attack. But Anthony Pettis... So what you want here, if someone's on the back, you want this foot on the ground, right? You want the foot on the ground. That's the side you want. You don't want to be on the same side as the knee. And what you want is, ideally, and this is what's kind of amazing about Anthony Pettis, you actually don't want this arm here. That, that, would, that would be a problem. You actually want to clear it. And what you want to do is you want to get your shoulder blades to the mat, you want to slide up and then turn. And it has to be kind of a surprise thing. There's a speed element to this. And you really got to get that right. And he does. Watch this. He pushes it up. And then you see that he's on the correct side. He's going to turn underneath. Look at this. He's bowed out. He is bowed out. Look at the shape of his body. And it's too late. High hips are going to win every time. And he comes up on top. What a great job by Anthony Pettis. That is just a skill thing. It's, he makes this look way easier, way easier than this is. You have to be fast. You have to be focused. You have to know what your body needs to feel like to get into that position. A lot of guys from here can't properly turn underneath. For him to be able to suck in and turn and bow out and then still come up on top because of speed is is pretty amazing. It reminded me of uh, Kevin Lee versus Tony Ferguson. Just kind of, I mean, that, this is more a coordinated thing that was a little bit more strength but still pretty good nevertheless and now watch this Pettis tries to control him open guard from Poirier Poirier's guard is not like Pettis's it's not nearly as good and then he gets up Anthony Pettis coming through controlling the, that far side wrist really appreciate how great wrist control is from this turtle position in mixed martial arts these days even Anthony Pettis is doing it that's going to force the weight down he lets it go now watch this he's on his knees okay watch what happens here he's going to raise up a little bit and then Pettis tries to put the hooks in it's just never going to work like that not never but it's just your chances of success significantly diminished because watch he's just going to fall forward even if you get one in it's hard to get the other one in and even if you do you're going to be too high up you need it when they're down when they don't have access to their to their ability to spring up when their rear end and knees are completely on the ground. That's what you need. And then he falls off. And watch what he does. He puts one hand behind the back here. This will go to control the hips when he gets down. And one hand over the head. So when he comes down, what does he have? Head and hip control. If you control someone's head and you control someone's hips, you've basically got them. Right, so great job by Dustin Poirier. Now watch this. Look at Anthony Pettis. Base all his hips are facing the mat, but he's all the way compacted. He's going to create the space he wants by pulling him up. Look at Anthony Pettis here. Look, look at just a, it's a slight adjustment. He's going to like do a dumbbell row here. Look at the lats. They're about to do some work here on Dustin Poirier. He's going to pull him up, and then he's going to sink the hook. Right. Then with the hook in, what do you think he's going to do? He's going to sag him back and pull him to the hooking side. Is he not? Yes, he is. Now, Pettis tries to roll underneath in the middle of this. So that's a great job by Anthony Pettis in sort of recognizing the moment here. Actually, it's a little bit later. So then he comes up. 
And Dustin should have won this. Look, he's controlling the hips, but ultimately high hips wins. He's controlling that wrist, uh, pushing down the head. Who's got the high hips here? He does, Well, sort of he does, but not really. Really, the high hips win here is going to be Anthony Pettis because he's also driving in this direction, right? So it's not merely vertical movement, but over the top. And he's going to get the high hips. Ultimately, you see he comes out on top. Dustin Poirier bails on it. So that's a great, great transition and a moment of awareness by Anthony Pettis because he was about to get run over there. Then he stands. I love this from Anthony Pettis, right? He's going to pull as he he's going to watch the hands here. He's going to pull on the hips and on the leg at the same time, and he's going to snatch out the post leg. I love that. I love that. It, 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 he makes that look a lot easier than that is. That is very hard to get on people, and he gets it cleanly, right? Pulls it out. Then he's going to try and go over and get the seatbelt. But look at Anthony. Look at, look at Poirier. On his toes, he's going to come up. And you can see he tries to sink the hook and just misses it. You can see he's playing with the back now, but the dexterity he needs and the timing he needs and the control, they're just not quite there. He's not quite back-to-back on him. He's not putting the weight down. Look, he's on his his weight is on his own feet rather than, rather than saddling, so to speak, Dustin Poirier. So as a consequence, even though he gets this one hook, he doesn't really he's blocked on the other one. So where is Poirier gonna stand? That same side, and he's just gonna buck him off like this. And what's he gonna do? One hand on the hip, one hand on the head. He's going to come around. And Pettis tries to regard here and can't. So these are amazing trends. Oh, he, he regards, but... Um, um, oh, actually, you know what? He does get the triangle here. Oh, this was the great triangle. Excuse me. So he locks up the triangle. I thought it was a bit of a different one. Now watch this. Same. He does everything right here. Cuts the corner, over the top, and then he puts the hand here. Why does he put the hand here? So in case Poirier stands, he ultimately loses uh, the battle for uh it's like an emergency break like you can't all you can't stand up fully in posture so it's you just stop them from being able to get posture control but here's what he does anthony pettis was facing him before now he rotates this way right watch his head come out on this side see it there party is going to make him keep rotating he's going to rotate him over see that he's going to keep rotating him keep rotating him but then he's going to stop and as a consequence the head pops out. Go back over that one more time. Facing him, now Pettis chooses to rotate underneath to lock up the triangle. This is a tight triangle, a very nice triangle. But Pettis is bloody, so Poirier is bloody and sweaty. So what's he going to do? He's going to force continued rotation over that shoulder, over that head, to the point where he's on the other hip, but he's not going to go all the way with it. He's going to stop even though he's forcing Pettis to rotate. And so you got forces essentially rotating in opposite directions, head pops out. Great job by uh, uh, Dustin Poirier there. You can see positional fundamentals, just awareness of how to get in and out of things, a little bit smoother with Dustin Poirier. What does he do? Look at Anthony Pettis. Base completely collapsed. He puts the hook in and then takes the back, and we go to the third round here. Look at that. Pretty, pretty nice, right? This is not the third round. Sorry, I was jumping ahead. Third round. Look at him. On his knees, on his elbow. What's he going to do? Base collapsed. Hook goes in. That's when you put the hook in. When the base is collapsed. Goes around. Controls. Now he's got the full body control. Now watch this. Excuse me. Body control is on the right hip of Anthony Pettis, right? Nope. Switches it to the left to take away that avenue again. So they rotate over. You see he's, he wants to be on this side. He flirts with it for a moment, but realizes he can't get it. So now they, he goes to the other side. Switches back. Excuse me. Here we are. Yep. Same side. Here we are. He's on this one. He's going to switch again. See that? He was on the he was on the right hip. 
then he switched to the left hip, then he switches back to the right hip. Yeah, excuse me, back to the right hip. So he's going back, to, he's taking away that avenue for Anthony Pettis. So then he finally rolled to this side. You can see it. He wants to get this hand away so he can get his shoulder blades. He, he, if your shoulder is this high off the mat, you're just, you just have no hope, right? you got to get some separation there. And he tries to turn. Anthony Pettis is, is, is straining, but you can see he's just not able to get enough internal rotation underneath. And you can see he's holding him here. He's got his arm here. Dustin Poirier is ready for the turn so that when it happens, look at that. He's almost got like a head and arm triangle already. Poirier's just on top of him, foot here, preventing any kind of real hip rotation on top. And then look at that. He's already caught him, dead to rights. So Pettis comes up. He's You can tell he's good at this, but eventually someone who's got great positional fundamentals like Dustin Poirier keeps the body triangle, posts on the hand. Doesn't matter how strong your hips are. Hips facing kind of into him, but controlling the head to slow the to rotation, hand here, that's going to win every time. It's going to win every time. And he comes right on top, and then he busts a rib. So I just want to point out here from both guys, this was just phenomenal. Anthony Pettis's guard and guard retention is just sick, ridiculous. But the positional fundamentals from Dustin Poirier, they're a little bit sharper. And that, that, that sharpness in the end, I think, is why he won this fight. Great job by both guys. Really great job by Dustin Poirier. And last but not least, we'll take a look at what's coming up in the week ahead. The Bellator and UFC trains roll on. Of course, there's more events than this, but these ones are going to take place as well. UFC Fight Night 121 from the Kudos Bank Arena. Kudos spelled with a Q. In Sydney, Australia, this will be UFC Fight Night. This was supposed to be Mark Hunt, but it now is Fabricio Verdun versus Marcin Tybora. That is your main event. Also on that card, Beck Rawlings taking on late replacement Jesse Rose Clark. Tim Means versus, remember the name, Bilal Muhammad. Jake Matthews, a top Australian prospect, against Bojan Velikovic, or Bojan, however. Uh, Elias Theodoru is back in action against um, that old goat, Dan Kelly. And then Alexander Volkanovsky taking on Shane Young. You go to the preliminary card, by the way, the both of these will be on Fox Sports 1. Ryan Benoit taking on Ashkan Mokaterian. Will Brooks and Nick Lentz, that's going to be on there. Anthony Hamilton versus Adam Wizorek. Damian Brown versus Frank the Crank Camacho. Alex Chambers versus Nadia Kasim is your first fight on Fight Pass, or your last one, depending on your perspective. Janelle Lausa taking on Eric Shelton, and then Rashad Coulter taking on Ty Tuivasa, Tuvasa, however you pronounce it properly. Please forgive me for getting that wrong. By the way, Bellator 188 will be at the Menorah Mivtachim or Mivtachim Arena. This will be in Tel Aviv, Israel. Uh, Noad Lahat taking on Jeremiah Labiano. John Salter versus Jason Radcliffe. Denise Kielholtz taking on Jessica Middleton. And then Haim Gozali taking on Arsen Fajtovic. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, if you have any questions, email me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook, also by the name Luke Thomas News. Appreciate you guys watching. Thank you so much. Subscribe to MMA Fighting. Give this video a thumbs up. And until next time, uh, enjoy the fights.